0: We're in the finale of um, Revelation, and um, hopefully it has been revealing for you as much as it has been, even for me, teaching it for me, um, and no doubt for all the team, looking at it in a very different way. Um, I know probably most of us coming from a, that kind of more charismatic Pentecostal tradition of uh, be more used to kind of a much more dynamic, uh, so to speak, um, view of Revelation being, um, again, that breakdown of the last seven years of life on earth. But again, looking at it from the perspective we have in a, in a kind of more pastoral perspective, hopefully it is no less dynamic to be able to look and see um, There is, no matter what time we are living in, no matter where we are in the church age, we are always living in dynamic times in which God's Spirit is indeed moving. Whether it seems that the church is in decline, God's Spirit is moving. Whether it seems to be in its ascendancy, God's Spirit is indeed moving. So, let me jump in and read the epilogue of Revelation and then as it were, pray and then put together some of my thoughts um, in terms of landing this series of Apocalypse Now. So I'm going to be reading from the ESV, but please follow in whatever translation you have, and then I will pray and then we we will dive in. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. "'who showed them to me. "'But he said to me, "'You must not do that. "'I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, "'the prophets, "'and with those who keep the words of this book. "'Worship God.' "'And he said to me, "'Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, "'for the time is near. "'Let the evildoers still do evil, "'and the filthy still be filthy.' And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon and bring in my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the, and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Lord, we are so thankful for uh, our time um, Again, just opening this year, diving into a book such as Revelation, Lord, um, has no doubt been a challenge—not just for us who are teaching it, there, Lord God, but no doubt for for us having to kind of listen and, as it were, take it in, take in its message, Um, think about what it means about our own preparedness, our own um, vision of what Christianity is, our own Christianity is is heading towards. And Lord, no doubt there are so many things we need to reflect on, and we pray that, Lord, again, your Spirit will teach us, will reveal to us, Lord, as the book desires to do, those things which are happening literally even now, that we may be prepared, we may be, as it were, a church fully equipped for the season in which, dear Lord, Father, you have placed us, that we may adapt and preach faithfully, witness faithfully, to the world and to those, dear Lord God, who have moved astray from you to bring correction, to bring reproof, and to bring restoration. So Lord, as we we ponder these things, as we look at your epilogue to this message today, Lord, be with us. Let your Spirit teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was incredibly tricky, um, even having um, such a long pause before coming up here again, Um, being able to think about what it is, um, I will say, in terms of landing um, this series of Apocalypse Now. And um, very easy to start something, (laughs) and not so easy to land it. Sorry. Let me just open this up again. Sorry, just bear with me, I just need to open... Up the right document, which will be lovely all right here we go. I wanted to start um as a as a text hopefully i mean strange enough, it was. <laughs> So often, um, that little inspiration can come at the last moment, just where you, you need it. And um, we were sitting down as we were reading, with, um, doing our normal devotions this morning as a family, and um, going through Romans. And it was this scripture that kind of struck me, and it said, you know what? This really, to some extent, has been helpful in terms of what we've been understanding about what Revelation is trying to do. And it's Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who oh, who suppress the unright who who hold the truth. Oh, that is really strange. Where is it going Let's start again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's that word they're revealed. Which is what revelation is. Revealed. Can you see what God sees? It can be hard to tell someone that they are under the wrath of God. But what is the alternative? To some extent, we know that it's not the finality of the wrath of God, but to some extent, even now, I believe we are seeing a world undergoing the wrath of God. if the revelation is trying to do one thing and in fact doing more than one thing, so this is not me saying it's just doing one thing, it is to open our eyes to what is going on around us right now. Let me cast our mind back to what we done when we were looking at chapters two and three with the churches. And I give this as an example. The church of Phytirah did not have a woman called Jezebel in it it was but it did have a person or persons in it teaching them to compromise with the pagan culture around it that it would end up being that would end up being detrimental to its christian identity so in that sense the church itself of fytira was abiding under wrath if they were going to follow this particular teaching, then they needed to come out of it. And again, we've been in those, some of us have been in those places where, you know, where people talk about the spirit of Jezebel is in this place. And we need to come out and we need to deal with that. And we know and we've probably seen probably a different version of this taken to a different degree. So the danger is is that we can go too far and see demons everywhere. There's a spirit of this and there's a, a demon of that and, you know, we've got to bind this spirit up. We've been there. But there is also a danger in that we do not see demons anywhere. And that's the parallel dangers, that we can be in a situation where Ultimately, we're on the fence and we pretty much don't want to stand anywhere and we don't want to call things as they are. It may be true that there are not demonic spirits, as it were, active and present everywhere. But by virtue of the revelation, we know that they are present somewhere. do we have the spiritual eyes to see what god sees i believe that the revelation is teaching us to seek to see and to seek and in that sense it does what it says on the can before diving into the text i just want to kind of go through the highlights of what we've been learning um, in the Revelation, so we began in chapter one. Jesus is Lord of His Church and stands in the midst of it, ready to judge it and the world. And, and the world itself. We also had to consider how best to interpret things that will soon happen. Remember, in that beginning, you know, soon happens was that. John talking about, you know, again, in that, I guess, from the you know, theological language of, you know, to, to, to one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day to the Lord. So therefore, um, theologically, it's only soon. Or is it soon? Like, it's happening, even as we are speaking right now, in, in, in his own time. In light of more recent interpretations of the church history, that these things can only allude to the last year. So that's what people tend to think, that he's seeing right into the future as opposed to within his current context. And we believe that there is something different, that we need to handle that. Not only that he, John does, not, does indeed see the final years on earth, but he also sees the situation in which he is in right now. In chapters 2 and 3, John again writes to the seven churches, which I just alluded to, and the actual churches located in Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey, which all are going through various stages of struggles and compromises. This snapshot of the church in the first century also serves as a representation of the church as a whole. So it's, it's this knuckling down that picture, this bird's eye view of the church in John's time. And at that particular time, the Spirit had allowed that all these situations within all these particular seven churches was a view of all the pastoral issues a church would go through, no matter what age they're in. So those churches represented the church universal, not just on a kind of Theological, our spiritual kind of setting, but an actual setting. They, they were people just like ourselves going through the same struggles like they were going through the, their own struggles. This, is my, this reminds us that there is nothing new under the sun. There's not to say, well, there were ancient problems and, and, and that was them, but we are now in a unique time and we really need fresh revelation, as it were, or fresh words for today. No. Their circumstances are also our circumstances as it relates to God. I also gave you that quote a few weeks back um, from Carl Truman's book, um, The Making, um, The Rise of the Modern, the Modern Mind, or the Modern Self. I Can't remember exactly what the title is. And Modern Self. There you go. Thank you, Passee. And we noted and through his assessment, and, I, and I, I, I thoroughly agree that we now find ourselves in a similar position today in the West as the first-century Christians were in the first century. The first-century Christians were in, because we no longer hold the moral high ground. The world looks at us, and when we say that we are a Christian, there was a time when the West when that meant something to people and it would have looked at you and they have said, "Well we can see that you're a, you know, you're a person of high moral character because you are a Christian but now, when you enter the arena, whether it be, you know whatever that arena is, whether it be YouTube, whether it be um, Facebook or our own personal spaces within colleges and our workspaces, when we say we are Christian, people begin to frown and wonder what it is that you believe. Well, you don't believe all that stuff that they say about the LGBTQ community, do you? You don't believe all that stuff about, you know, um, you know people who commit adultery should be stoned, do you? And they stereotype. They, they straw man us and they basically say, you no longer hold the, the high moral ground. That has now moved to a new, quote-unquote, humanistic elite. And just like the Christians in their own days who were accused of not believing in the gods, they were, they were seen as atheists. What do you mean you don't believe in the gods? You only believe in one God. What do you mean of, about loving each other as a family? All of these things were morally repugnant to the first century world. So even in that situation, we can see we are pretty much in the same situation that they were in. How do we, as it were, not compromise and say ultimately the moral ground still stands with us? We believe that what God has revealed to us is true. In chapters 4 and 5, we saw the picture of the heavenly throne room and the sovereign God's rule over all peoples and events. And we also saw that Jesus, that's the Lamb of God, was the only one worthy of reclaiming the earth as his sovereign possession. That, again, should remind us, even as we would later see in chapter 6, that only Jesus can give what he promises. When people come riding on their white horses, promising us that we will give you peace, I will give you a better, a better nation, I will make you great again. Remember as our brother Felix was teaching us, that ultimately we will look at that, remember that seed and say, no, only Jesus can deliver the earth and to deliver the world, a kind of world that is worth living in. All we can do is patch up. The best we can expect of our world leaders today is to kind of not let it all fall apart completely. And that's not a bad thing. We'll do what we can. We'll try and make sure those who are in need get the resources that, they, that we, can, we can put together, We'll try not to go to war. But ultimately, I cannot deliver utopia. And they cannot. And they should never promise that they can. In chapter six and seven, we learned about the seven seals and God's outpouring of wrath on the world, and the, we face the challenge of only seeing this as related as to, as we said, the supposed last seven years of life. Is there a particular time where all of a sudden God, the throne, God's throne room becomes active, and now the Lord says, that's it. I'm ready to call the last days on earth. But we believe, as I believe, should I more accurately say, that the resurrection of Christ was the beginning of all these legal proceedings in heaven. That the resurrection and Christ's ascension began the inauguration of events that we saw in Revelation. That now the kingdom of God, the kingdom of earth, that the, the, all the realms of earth, the cosmic realm, were now belonging to Jesus legitimately. Being both the Son of God and the Son of Man. So this, out, this patterns that we saw of the outpouring of judgment on numerous nations and institutions without it leading to you know, any ultimate end. We, we see that pattern, that cycle of the expectations of people who believe that they're going to enter a new age and that we're going to be better off than we ever were before, only to fall into desperate times again. You can think of numerous regimes even that have risen up within the last century. Promising people that they're going to ultimately be all right, we think of China, don't we? We think of and you know Mao's revolution. We even think of the the Soviets as well, isn't it? Oh, we're we're going to be all right. We you know we're going to usher in this utopia. Then you know that man comes riding on his white horse. I promise you peace. It's going to be all right. But what happens? Famine comes, quite literally. War comes, and then death, and people start dying horrendously. In so many ways, we are already witnessing this pattern of people failing to deliver what they say they can deliver. We also had to deal with that situation with, especially in chapter 7, of the 144,000. And so many people, again, who try to look at this as a, a literal 144,000, and even more so, a literal 144,000 of ethnic Jews. But then we saw that when we look at the text, is that initially John sees 144,000, then turns, and then he actually sees a great multitude that he couldn't number that, to some extent, There is a hint even in the text that this was an allusion to a vast number. A number that could not be numbered. And so it was perfected within this number of 144,000 and seen as representative. In chapters 8 to 11, we started to see that same pattern again, that same iteration of seven trumpets now and an alternative view of the outpouring of God's wrath from another perspective that ultimately it was not... Now, this is another set of judgments. It's now the perspective has been changing. We're seeing not so much the figures of horsemen, so to speak, but we are now seeing things that were, quote-unquote, happening in the world or happening in the spiritual dimension of of the world. Seeing these vast... um, Locust-like creatures and such. Demons unleashed. New ideas, as I, as I suggested, being put out through demonic influence. That people are now being led by these ideologies that if you just do this, everybody will be okay. And obviously we know that so many things begin with these good intentions. It's the famous saying, goes, isn't it? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. We also had to deal with the two witnesses. And again, so often as we read in um, popularized, serialized um, books about the end times, that uh, you know, we're, we're looking for two specific figures that were, or in particular looking for Moses, so to speak, and Elijah raising up again. And yet when I looked at this and, I, and, and, and looked deeply into this I, and, and said, well, look, if this is not two literal people that we're gonna see, literal Moses and literal Elijah, then what is it then, like we saw within the seven churches, it's actually about the church's witness. When we looked at Moses as a, as a figure, that the dual witness of the church is that it needs to go to an unbelieving world. Like Moses went to an unbelieving Pharaoh, to an unbelieving Egypt, to that pagan culture, and he said, this is the God. Who is this God that I I would fear? Pharaoh wanted to say, and this is God. And he saw the power of God being demonstrated to them. And again, it should not be brushed under the carpet that Egyptians also left with the Israelites to go with them, because they agreed that this was the power of God. This is the God that we need to follow. We we shouldn't miss those footnotes. And so that was one thing that we need to go out there and declare, as it were, that the power of God is, like Romans 1 says, revealed. Can you see the wrath of God being poured out on people's bad ideas? Then there's Elijah. Elijah was a prophet raised up not to go to a pagan world, but to speak to Israelites. The apostate nation of northern Israel who under Jezebel had ushered in Baal worship as the official worship of God. They weren't even going and pretending to, you know, worship Yahweh under Jeroboam's regime, remember with the calves and all the rest of it. They weren't even pretending to do that anymore. That had all been sidelined. Oh, we're worshiping Yahweh through the calves, but now we are only worshiping Baal alone. And Elijah had to witness to those apostates and say, God is in judgment of you. The church has a role to preach to those who claim to hold to Christian truths and Christian values. And we need to say, no, you need to come out of her. You need to come out of that system. You need to come out of that and come back to orthodoxy. In chapter 12, um, we saw the, age, the age-old vision of the good versus evil. The woman, and the dragon, and the child. Um, this symbolic Im- imagery, which, strangely enough, is repeat within pagan imagery as well. The woman and child and some form of terrifying dragon, a Tiamat-style dragon. And This was a summary image of the dragon and the serpent's antagonism with the, pa- the people of God. And it's that, that, that age-old um, good versus evil. We also saw that the image of the woman switched, not just just to be representative of the ethnic Israel, but also of the church itself and how God protects his church as his bride. In chapters 13, we, we saw the destructive power of the beast and, and, and its determination to win over the world to its ideology and the mark of the beast. And again, this kind of ties into what I said about the, the outpouring of wrath and these demons being unleashed to bring these new things into the world. Um, as much as they bring these innovations and new designs, so to speak, they bring these ideologies and people's men and men listen to them and they are filled with them and they get these ideas and they go out and they create the new thing, that will ultimately, though initially it, it, it shines and it makes us feel great, we are moving forward, ultimately we start to see some form of deterioration in the long term. So the mark of the beast not being, quote-unquote, a physical mark, so to speak, but being those things that we believe with our, our mind and those things that we do, being on our hands and being on our forehead. Again, it doesn't doesn't omit the fact that that these things could have very physical representations, but we know that ultimately it means that when our minds have given over to these things, when we say, I believe this, and we saw the pattern in Daniel, isn't it? In Daniel 2 in particular, you know, my mind and my body has given over to worshipping this statue as though it were the God, the only God I should worship. Remember, Daniel was, a, was, was an important book for understanding that, that the pattern of how the church needed to hold its ground in a pagan world. I would not give myself over to that. I would not submit and give to, to men what only I ought to give to God. In chapter 14, we see God make um, a separation between his people and the and the and those of the devil and the 144,000 uh, again it rises up again in this particular chapter and must be representative of those the complete church the complete church not just obviously through the church age but right the way back to the beginning of time so the 144,000 are separated and the you know we see these vivid images and we see the chapter of the defeated, unbelieving world as well. Again, as Jesus represented as the sheep and the goats. Um, Again, many images have been used to, to kind of highlight that, the wheat and the tears, so to speak. So we saw, as it were, that separation being made. In chapters 15... And 16, we get another perspective of God pouring out his wrath through the bowls and the unbelieving world again. And it seems um, similar plagues. And remember, we were tying in that whole idea of the plagues being very much like the plagues in Egypt. And that was a pattern of God bringing that world to an end, even though it continued on. In chapter 17 and 18, we see the depiction of the whore of Babylon and the beast as a joint entity. And this is representative of an unholy alliance between religion and the state. The pattern of states rising up on the backs of religious institutions is not one to be taken lightly. You know, one of the things that you always see when, again, these leaders rise up, they rise with religious religious rhetoric. You know, one of the one of the arguments that many of the um, the modern atheists make is that when they when we when we raise up um, examples like Nazi Germany and 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 Stalin's um, Russia, they always say that. But ye, these were religious movements at heart, and to some extent, they're right. At the heart of them, there was an atheist ideal, that it was about the triumph of man and not the triumph of God that ultimately they wanted to get at. But they needed the religious rhetoric in order to rally the people. This is good versus evil. This is us against them. This is our holy purpose. If we do not succeed, we will not triumph. And people won't rally, you know, people won't go to war because they say, well, the reason why we're going to war is because we we, we really basically want their stuff. You cannot rally to that because ultimately say, well, you want me to go over there so that rich people can get richer? No. But when you get that nationalism, that patriotism, look, this is us. This is good versus evil. We've got to rid this world of this evil. We've got to bring democracy to to, to the people. We've got to bring liberation and freedom. We've got to bring capitalism. We want these people to live like we live. We want them to Inherit the blessings that we've had. Everybody uses the religious rhetoric because that's how you rally people. You cannot rally behind a bottom line. So that relationship with, 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 with the religious institutions in order to propel the state, again, was seen as dangerous. And God will judge it. And God has judged it. And we've seen numerous Examples of these fall over the ages, and they will continue to fall until Jesus comes. In chapters 19 and 20, we come to the return um, and the dawn of a new age, a millennium. The challenge to us to see the millennium, the millennium reign of God Christ comes with how we read the then. You know, how does that millennium come? So, in the beginning of chapter 20, there's that then, very challenging. Is, is John seeing this sequentially, you know, Satan being bound and then, and then, or is this a more casual relationship? Is John seeing multiple things happening and then just basically linking them together casually, but not necessarily putting them in order? So how we read that then is important. And obviously, numerous scholars have debated how the Greek is interpreted in that particular situation. But the then, as we have seen in numerous places, doesn't always have to be taken sequentially. And so therefore, to to die on that hill would be a mistake. In chapter 21, we come to the consummation of the age and a new heaven and a new earth. And Um, again, as we went through that with with Pastor B last week, um, that, you know, a place with no night and no sea and no temple. Again, these were the consummation of all that God wants to bring. The return to Eden with no evil, no chaos. Again, that's what that, no no night means, no evil. Nobody, no evil can come out there because evil needs the cover of darkness. No sea, there's going to be no more chaos anymore. And no temple, because the presence of God is going to be strongly felt throughout the whole thing. These are symbolic representations of what that new place would be like. It doesn't mean there will literally be no sea. It's just saying it's a world without no chaos. It doesn't mean there will be no literal night. It just says there will be no place for evil to hide. And again, God's presence, again the temple of God. It's again it's the new Eden. Eden was, I believe, the the, the, the original temple of God, and therefore is that restoration. Now we come to these last this epilogue, and having begun as a letter, it now returns in the form of a letter as well. In writing its epilogue, in its final kind of, as it were, farewells. But not farewells as we normally see, like, you know, greet brother, you know, so and so. Greet this and uh, Rem-, you know, remember to bring my parchments and all that kind of stuff. It ends with warnings. So serious is the letter that it comes with admonitions. Admonitions to take heed to. And there are five of them. In verses 6 and 7 comes the first set of admonition. The word is true, one which is in unity with the rest of the biblical witness. So it's in line with the spirits of the prophets. In other words, all, the, all those who have taught before, all those who have come before, this is in line with them. It is not out of sync with the rest of Scripture. And that's what it implies by the spirit of the prophets. It all speaks of one thing, Christ. And Christ's reign. For this reason, we have looked at other parts of the Bible to see just how this aligns with it. And most notably, the flood we see as a end-time, an end time story that we need to do. Because Jesus himself says, as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of um, Sodom. And we see also references to Sodom. We also saw strong references to Exodus. Again, unity with that. In particular, I wanted to, to point you towards eight, Ezekiel 8 and 9. And again, about how the judgment of Israel was, was again, a typifying of this similar judgment. Again, this, you know, there was angels going out, writing all those that, who were grieved at what was happening in Israel. And they were being sealed and they were the ones that were going to be alive, that God was going to preserve. They were his 144,000, so to speak. And we saw those who were destroyed. But we didn't, well, obviously when you read it, it wasn't that these people were literally slain and another angel went out to go and slay all those that didn't have the seal. Those people didn't die. Those were killed by Babylonian soldiers. So we see that whole idea of that we shouldn't necessarily read into this, this whole idea that the wrath of God has to come with literal spirits being revealed. The angelic, Forces and the, the demonic forces are moving all around us. Things are happening. As I said, we're standing in the middle of a battlefield, even as, even as we are right now. And it's our worship and our attention to God that is our stronghold and our safety. We also looked at Matthew 24 and 25. Again, we could look at numerous parts of the gospel, but in particular, focus on that. And we will return to that in application today of a pattern of what is the believer supposed to do as we are waiting for God. The suddenness of destruction, clear from the text, for the unbelievers and for the believer, there is some great awareness of the impending destruction that doesn't take them completely by surprise. And so even though other people are taken by surprise by it, we are not surprised. We also noted that the attitude and the conduct of the believer was also under review during the time of the impending destruction of, as God's Spirit sifted the lives of all who lived, who, all in order to establish a clear distinction between the true believer and the unbeliever. In that sense, this waiting period establishes who we really are and how we act in it matters. So we are blessed if we keep the words of this book. And that's that strong end in, chapter, in verse 7 there. Warning 2 in verses 8 and 9. Do not worship anyone but the triune God. I mean, there's you know, John completely over, overwhelmed by all, the, all that he's seen. And now he's just in a, a place of complete humility, completely broken down. And he is warned to avoid the same pitfalls as the compromising churches are such as Pergamum and Phatira, that no longer had God as the center of their worship. The church still has a problem with this, even to this very day, that we can end up being in awe of messengers, great orators, great men, quote-unquote, of God, or women of God, that we suddenly feel like, man, it's like I'm hearing from the voice of God. But the angel a mind says, I am not the originator. Worship God alone. There's that strong admission, worship God alone. And again, all good teaching, all good, I would say messengers will always have to point and say, worship God alone. Give him thanks. Warning free, verses 10 to 15. Just like those who have eyes but cannot see and those who have ears but cannot hear, so it is that the revelation only blesses those to whom grace has been given. Again, that great warning in Isaiah, that great warning that um, Jesus also gives is that even as he's teaching, trying to make the gospel clear, it is, as it were, pulling the wall over some people's eyes, but at the same time, other people are are having the wall lifted, and they're suddenly understanding it for the first time. Now I'm understanding the mysteries of God, whilst all the quote-unquote scholars of the day were falling into greater delusion. You cannot approach, as it were, and try to understand the gospel purely on rationalist, rationalistic mind. The gospel is rational, but it's not rationalistic. It's not designed to work so that my human part has a great pride in how I can appropriate it because I'm clever enough to understand it. But to the mind who is prepared to allow the revelation of God to flow through it, it brings a rational argument as to why they should bow the knee to Jesus. And it makes sense. It's not a leap of faith. To now go, I now believe in the gospel because now it makes sense. Everything now fits into line. The gospel is never a leap of faith. Though initially it might look like that. But when you're in it, like the disciples, where can I go to find truth? Where do I go? Even when they don't understand all the intricate details of eating Jesus' flesh and body, they still don't know how they can go anywhere else. To feed, it fills the rational mind, and gives them peace, even if they don't understand all things. The fact that God does indeed speak clearly, but people are, you know, people are unable to comprehend it because of their own evil intents, and that's what blocks people. So they're evil. Continue on in evil. The righteous continue on in righteousness. The gospel sifts us out. The washing of robes is also symbolic here of going through persecution and tribulations. And so it is that the people of God who you know know who they are because they are prepared to lose their comfort and freedom in order to stand up for the truth. That's what that washing of the robes is like how do I know if I'm a believer? Well, are you standing up for the faith? Are you running to compromise as soon as you're challenged? Are you prepared to bow down those values and those things that you believe in simply to accommodate? So when we're washing our robes, that, that, that those people, as I said, that uh, by the word of their testimony, is that, is that subjective nature, is that I know who I am because I know what I've suffered for the gospel. I know that Jesus is real for me because I've had to give up stuff. So the washing of our robes is important as our part of our testimony. The tribulations are helpful because they help you establish what it is you truly believe. Warning four, sixteen to seventeen. Jesus is declared the true Messiah, the root of David. It is an interesting term because root here can mean literally the root, the beginning of, and also a offshoot of. You know, like in a family tree, the root of it as it goes down. And so it's quite interesting that as the son of God, he is the root of David. David originated from him. He is his creator. But also as the root of David and as the son of man, he is the offspring of David and in the messianic line. And so both as the creator and as the offspring of David, he fulfills this position of Messiah as both creator and son. As I said, both are actually true of Jesus. He is of David, but also the creator of David. The church is also further identified as the people who say, Come. Again, the church is supposed to be an Advent church, a church that is indeed preaching and looking forward to the coming of God and the coming of His Son. We are to be looking forward to that and not see it as a disruption. To our way of life. Because again, as Jesus said, in the days of Noah, in the days of, they were married and getting married and as we do, but we also do so in the light that the kingdom will also come and all these things would have to either survive in it or die. We do not look and think that the kingdom coming is like the end of our playtime. So the true church says, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Jesus fulfills also the Isianic vision of the Messiah as Jesus creates a truly accessible kingdom. Again, that, that, that talk about, you know, come and buy, come and, and receive is, is again an allusion to Isaiah. That's why I say it's Isianic. It's that picture of the gospel being accessible to all, via whether... Whether by virtue of class, because no longer it's a, it's no longer an issue of whether I have the money to hear good teaching, and whether it's a, mes- a message of ethnicity. I'm not a Jew. How can I enter in and, and understand the things that God has said? Now those groups have been broken down. It's an Isianic view of the Messiah that he is accessible to all. Warning in five. Verses 18 to 21. Do not add to the book or take away from it. It's a strong reminder of how the canon of Scripture works. We need the full word of God. God cannot be for any private interpretation, but must be used in the spirit of the prophet and the word which it was breathed out to fulfill. For this reason, and as I will kind of go into a bit later, the revelation is part of the gospel. It's what we call the eschatological end. This is, a, this is where it's all a, heading to you. We cannot just accept the gospel on the basis that it kind of gives me that kind of moral, again, we can't even claim the moral high ground now, can we? It gives me a moral way of living and it helps me in, in my life. And it, you know, it helps me to, you know, it's a great network, social-wise, all the rest of it. We have to embrace the gospel to where it says it wants to go. It's like when two young people get together on the basis of, you know, I'm looking to be married at some point. There's a point where they really need to kind of look at each other and say, where, where, what do you want? Where are we heading with this? Is this just a fling for you or are you looking to be married and make something established? You can almost say that's the eschatological end. Where are we heading with this? And the same sort of thing is that we cannot have a fling with Jesus. We have to accept that this is what he wants. I want to fill the whole earth with people who just love me and have no one there that doesn't love me. Now, I know for some people that's a problem. But that's where we're heading to with this. That's the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean that we are the ones who get rid of all the people who don't love him. Who are we to judge? But he will indeed judge. Do we accept that as part and parcel of the gospel? So how do we apply this? I go back to Matthew 24, as I said. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Looking at the eschatological end and um, the end of, I guess, at least where Jesus is speaking there of, of Israel in the time leading up to AD 70, at least in part. Who is the faithful and wise servant? And that's the question we're left with. Where am I in this book? Who am I? Am I a sheep or a goat? Am I a wheat or am I a tear? Am I part of the person who is moving from one stage of holiness and moving further into holiness? Or am I the one who is having made some kind of um, declaration? I'm suddenly realizing that Christianity is not what I want. In that first parable, again, looking at the household of God, And the people who suddenly realize, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to treat um, the other servants wisely, he says that, you know, the first question again, I, I ask it again, are you willing to take care of the household of God? Do you care for the people of God? You know, when you read Paul's letter, particularly to the Corinthians, First Corinthians, you cannot mistake that one of the key points in it is that it matters considerably how we treat each other. It matters. How we treat each other matters. Looking at the parable of the, the virgins, the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. Who is the wise servant? They are prepared. They're prepared. Not like on some heightened alertness, like, you know, again, you know, this is not about looking at the Adventist movement that raised up and created the Seventh day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses from out of the 1800s, where it's like, let me sell up all my property. Let me jump onto the roof on this particular day or particular you know, month of the year and wait for Jesus to come. That's not the alertness. That's not the preparedness we've done. People have moved on from that. That's not what it is. It's not, you know, oh, let's all sell up and live in a commune. That's not what this is about. It's about day to day being able to pray, come Lord Jesus, come. And mean that genuinely in our hearts as we go to work, as we go and pick up the kids, as we go and close on a new mortgage. Come Lord Jesus, come. As we sign that mega business deal, come Lord Jesus, come. It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. For us, no matter, as we get on with life, we are constantly on that position of like saying, Lord, if you come today, it's all good. Not just on those dark days when you say, Lord, I just want you to come. Easy, isn't it then? (laughs) we have got to be real. Who is the faithful and wise servant? They are diligent. To put the Lord's resources to work, Matthew 25, 14 to 30, the parable of the talents. A talent was a considerable amount of money in the ancient world. It was a tantamount to about a thousand or thousands of pounds. It was a considerable investment. When you think about what God has given you, when you think about the fact that he has made an investment in you. He has given you a considerable amount of money. If your boss came to you in your business establishment and said, here is the resources. I'm going to give you £10,000 worth of resources. This is just looking at it logically. And all of a sudden, we, it will, I think it will spark in your mind. Make this department better. Now he doesn't say that, but he gives you the, gives you the money, because that's what he, he doesn't say what you should do with it, and we should follow that. But he says, "Here's 10,000 pounds given to your department. Are you going to be the one when he comes some years later to say, how's, that, how, "How's it all going?" Or even a few months later, "How's that all going?" You're going to say, "Ah." Master, <laughs> got your money. <laughs> Have it back. Thank you for it. It didn't need it. was all right. The implication was make it better. Do something with it. Be diligent. When you look at it in the parable, in the, in the strength of the parable alone, you suddenly realize it implies make it better. To hand back the resources is a slap in your boss's face. You mean somebody didn't even invest it in somebody else? You didn't hire somebody with it to say, figure out what to do with it? Couldn't even be bothered to do that. Who is the wise and faithful servant? They care for God's people and treat them with the respect that they need and deserve because of who their God is. They are prepared and they are diligent. Can you be a Christian without accepting the eschatological conclusions of the gospel? We've just explored that and the question is, I think, is a categorically no. You have to think of it in the lines of, as Jesus, as you sit there making your commitment to Jesus, and says, are you prepared to go where I'm going? Are you going to see this vision right through to the end? And that's what Revelation reminds us. It is the end part of the gospel. It is where the gospel has been leading. It's not just been that Christ has come and He's given us a great new hope and I feel great. And, you know, again, it blows out those myths that we believed. You know, that ultimately, you know, all the gospel is about is that ultimately when I die, I don't go to a place, I I don't go to a disembodied place where I am am tormented. I go to a disembodied place where I am um, internal bliss and I'm very, very happy and I feel very, very comfortable and I need never see the earth and I, you know, I was even thinking about this program. Maybe I even come back and help some people. Remember that Michael Langdon program with the angels that come back and visit and all the rest of it. And maybe I'll do some good like that. But ultimately, um, coming back and living a an bodied life in a world now filled with other people who love the Lord, ah, I mean, that's a bit far-fetched. But that's what most people think. Oh, I'm going to go and be with the Lord in heaven, which may happen for a moment. But that's not the end. The revelation is as much a part of the gospel as the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even the epistles. The gospel is not just about how I live as a moral agent before God. It's about how that will will lead up to a world in which that is the only way to live. Let's pray. So, Father, we are so thankful that you've uh, navigated us through um, this, um, this jog through the book of Revelation. Uh, Lord, um, again, we, 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 we excuse the details, Lord, and um, knowing that, Lord God, much could have been said. But taking this pastoral look at the book, Lord, and try to think, what does this speak to us as a church today? How do I live this? How do I see this in connection to my own faith, Lord, and where I'm going, Lord? I pray that, Father, it will challenge us today. Challenge us about what it means about how I treat other, other church members, Lord, or even how I treat other Christians. Even if they don't believe exactly as I believe, Lord, how do I love them? How do I maybe use my strength as a witness, Lord, even in the spirit of Elijah to bring people round, Lord, even how we might be prepared, how I might think everything, Lord God. Again, we just remember that great parable of Jesus about... The man who said, I'm going to build all this and I'm going to do all that, but doesn't realize that his life was required of him that night, Lord. Do we live day by day, being prepared, dear Lord God, that this all can come to an end? By virtue of our death, Lord God, or by virtue of your return? Do we hold on to life in such a way, dear Lord Father, that we are, as it were, unaware that you are coming back? And we don't think about it as we make those big grand gestures in our lives Lord and think that Lord and and with all the expectations that comes with that Lord God do we hold on to those things loosely Lord God grateful for the opportunity but at the same time we don't want it to block our testimony of being able to say Maranatha I really want the Lord to come Lord am I diligent Lord, you've made a huge investment in us, Lord God. And maybe we don't see that, Lord God, the, 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 the proverbial talent that you've given us. The, 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 the fact that you've made me in your image, Lord, you've made us to be able to do stuff. Am I using that, Lord God? Am I investing in that? Am I going to come back and say, Lord, um, yeah, all those gifts and talents, I, you know, here, Lord, just have it back. Just too afraid to step out, too afraid to use it. Lord let us not be that person let's be invested dear Lord God in the, the fact that Lord there is a work to be done Lord as Jesus said there is a, a harvest dear Lord God you haven't come back because there is a work to be done souls to be saved a job dear Lord God to witness to the world out there Lord help us to do that well thank you Father for just again in your spirit walking us through this and may your spirit speak to us Lord God as we Move away, Lord God, and move into our our Easter period, Lord God. Let these things also reflect and highlight even the significance of the resurrection for us. Lord, the resurrection being that starting gun for all these things being um, put into action there, Lord God. Lord, help us to do a turnaround there, Lord, wherever we need to. Put our trust in you. And be that wise and faithful servant in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.